0: Welcome to The Puck, Venture Capital and Beyond, a show that explores the evolving landscape of the venture capital world. We'll have candid conversations with today's VCs and entrepreneurs who are shaping those changes. I'm Jim Beer, Managing Partner of Beer and & Trough and President of CMBG Advisors. This podcast brings changemakers to the table to discover the inner workings behind decision-making strategies and ultimately how they got to where they are today.
1: The combination of the local sea capital coupled with access to Silicon Valley's immense amount of venture capital funding that other markets don't really have is just this combination of factors that no one can take away. And so I think that we're really bullish on where
0: LA goes. Today, our guest is Dave Young, partner and the co-founder of the Santa Monica office of the Cooley Law Firm. Dave, as a top VC lawyer, gives us a unique and valuable perspective on the Southern California VC community. So I wanna welcome you, but just for people listening in terms of an overview of who Dave Young is, where did you come from? What brought you to LA? Where are you from originally? Tell us just a little bit about your background.
1: Yeah, so I'm originally from the Bay Area. I've been in the same practice for 24 years now, which is really representing venture back companies and their investors. And, you know, I first came down to LA in 2000. And I founded the office for another Silicon Valley firm called Venture Law Group and then eventually came over and founded Cooley's office in 2012. And my background prior to that gave me a little bit of a unique perspective just on LA and markets in general, because prior to founding Cooley's office, I'd actually been one of the first six lawyers in offices of three different Silicon Valley firms in different locations and in different markets. So I started out in San Diego, where I was the sixth lawyer at what was called Gray Carey, which is now DLA Piper, in the North County office that just merged with the Silicon Valley firm, saw that grow to 35 or 40 lawyers, then spent some time in Silicon Valley, Then went to Venture Law Group in Seattle, again as lawyer number six, kind of right at the peak of the internet bubble, 98 to 2000, that grew to 35 lawyers probably, within two years. And then that's when I came down to LA to found Venture Law Group's office. And so seeing those different ecosystems and those different markets and then also seeing different kind of founding different offices or being an early member of different offices gave me a unique perspective to come in and kind of help found Cooley's office. So I've had the same practice my whole career, been in a bunch of different markets, and I think that's really given me some perspective on helping to
0: build here in L.A. So talking about that different perspective, when you look at where L.A. is today, and the companies you were working on 20 years ago versus today, what industries or what things do you see developing, whether it's AI or otherwise, that are new right now in LA? Anything coming across your desk, so to speak?
1: Yeah, I mean, certainly things have changed a ton. And some of it's just the breadth of companies. Like in LA in particular, like when I first came down, and you remember this too, and back in 2000, LA was the fastest growing venture market on a percentage basis even though it was probably a third-tier market overall. You sort of had, people were looking at convergence of entertainment and tech, is what they called it then, and then LA probably got hit harder than any market post-internet bubble, because it only had internet companies, and it's hard to remember that was actually a bad thing in 2003. And then you kind of had the Web 2.0 period in 2005, 2006, and LA's really taken off since then. And so it's interesting, because LA, people think from outside the market that It's all sort of things at kind of entertainment-related or media-related. And the reality is, if you define that really broadly, there is a lot of that. There's a lot of companies that are at that sort of intersection of media, entertainment, and tech. Again, it can mean a lot of different things, whether that's online video, whether it's just other types of content, whether it's influencer marketing stuff, whatever, right? If you define that broadly. What we've seen a lot of lately, there's certain things where just LA is the natural market VR and AR certainly one i mean that's cooled off a little bit more especially on the virtual reality side where people probably see AR now as the more near term opportunity we've continued to see a lot almost in the food tech areas one that there's been a ton of activity lately and that again can take a lot of different flavors there's been a lot of esports and gaming i mean gaming has always been another thing that's a natural fit for LA as it starts to become eSports and you have more people you know, watching eSports and watching the World Series and the NBA Finals and things like that and then dollars pouring in there. Again, that's been great for LA because it's just a natural epicenter of that in you know, addition to having both Activision and Riot Games kind of running the biggest leagues here I and mean, then you've got a bunch of the teams, you've got a bunch of just those elements. And then I think LA will continue to be really strong in e-commerce. I mean, that continues to be the area where we just see continued leadership and activity. And so LA is a little bit of a different market, certainly than Silicon Valley, that businesses tend to be a little bit less pure tech plays, but you have really what we see in LA is things where there's industries being disrupted. And that's probably been the theme of the last five or six years is just tech has sort of taken over everything. And like insurance is one example. If you'd, told me seven years ago that I would have like six or seven insurance company clients. I would have thought that my life took this weird turn and I was no longer a tech venture lawyer and was now an insurance lawyer and yet there's one doing health insurance, one doing car insurance, one doing life insurance, one doing homeowner's insurance, one doing ship insurance, and a couple one doing weather related insurance. You know it's just crazy how that's disrupted everything. A millennial is never gonna walk into an insurance agent's office literally Never. And that's just not how they're going to do it. It's going to be something on an app or something that's easier. And that's just one other example.
0: So that's interesting. So the notion of life insurance agents or these agents that are out there selling you insurance, you're seeing the trend being that it'll all be done through our phones, essentially.
1: Yeah, I think it's kind of a generational thing. But yeah, it's just another area that's being disruptive. And, you know, they sit in board meetings, how about the behavior of Millennials, but it's true, yeah. I mean, I think that that's the big so, driver so what, of it.
0: In using that as an example, because young people are a great indicator of where the puck is going, so to speak. You talk about buying insurance, which again, oh, you know, health insurance. And we've obviously, you and I are paths crossed in terms of companies doing brokering with insurance. And there's all sorts of creative things going on in that regard. In terms of young people and trends and these disruptive things and how millennials are acting differently than our generation, so to speak, what other companies are disruptive things? Well, and there's the
1: some, you know, I think, and I think another one that I think is, is really interesting in the, in the longer term is a company here in town called Kitchen United that basically has virtual kitchens for restaurants and brands. For delivery so you know the typical delivery radius is two to three miles I think to go on to Postmates or whatever mm-hmm. Uber Eats choose your delivery app but you know Kitchen United basically just takes a warehouse or a location and has segregated in you know, the shipping containers or otherwise and just will have five or six different restaurants here's Chili's here's green, here's whatever I'm choosing bad examples Applebee's you know whatever restaurants are there and it's their food it's their employees it's truly their menu but there's not really a physical location, but when you're ordering on Postmates, you don't really know that, and you don't really care, right? If you're trying to order something from Chili's, you're gonna order it, and so rather than going through the expense of having to create an actual physical restaurant location, even if it had a slightly different footprint in order to get delivery, it enables them to have a standard delivery footprint unbelievably, and that's just another thing i say that's Example, another one I think is a little bit driven by that changing behavior just because the food delivery is just become ubiquitous as far as how people are doing,
0: and it's just going to continue. So again, looking into the future and kind of economic indicators in terms of people are now talking about negative interest rates. They're talking about, is there going to be a recession? When is there going to be a recession? We never typically see recessions when there's an election coming up. But in terms of investor attitudes, in terms of money right now are you seeing any sea change out there in terms of are people being more cautious? are they seeing this at the end of the cycle? I mean what's your thought about that? yeah
1: I think there's a couple different answers to that. I think that like if I look at just what we're seeing in the market it varies by the stage. at sort of the later growth stage 50 million 100 million dollar financings, the market is like significantly better than it's ever been at that, you know, and people who, it's true of me and it's true of pretty much everyone, that like people have done more deals in that range of true sort of venture-backed companies in that $50, $100 million plus financing range in the last two or two and a half years than the 25 years combined before. It's just there's so many more of those deals and there's a bunch of reasons for that. Companies don't go public anymore and so those used to be IPOs for the first half of that 25 years, always. And then if you go to kind of series B, series C, it's probably the market's better than it's ever been but not by a huge amount. Series A, it's probably as good as it's ever been. And then seed was probably better two or three years ago. And so it's sort of just almost a straight line curve where the market starts out great, but not amazing. And then at the later stages, it's absolutely unbelievably amazing. And so there's just a ton of dollars going to work and there's a bunch of reasons and going to a little more maybe on that. But I do think that there's generally a sentiment that a recession is coming and it's just because there has to be. I mean, it's been 10 years of an economic upcycle which is literally the longest period ever and nothing has fundamentally changed in mean, the way economies work that would get anyone to believe that those cycles don't exist anymore they almost have to and so I've sort of stopped predicting that it's about to happen and we're seeing all these signs of it, even though we are, because I said that in 2015, I said it in 2017, and I was wrong both times when I was telling everyone we're going to have a recession in the next six to nine months, we're seeing all the signs. And I think there's some reasons for that. I think that the corporate tax rate, that's one real impact it had, is it really did. That being cut, you know, in the tax cuts a few years ago, had a real effect on public companies and M&A and just the ability to continue to put cash to work. And so that I think has helped extend it, but I do think that sometime there will be a recession and I think for entrepreneurs and people with companies, I think you have to always factor that, but I think when it's 10 years into an upcycle, you have to factor it even more. You know, One is just taking the money that's there and people start to sort of realize that and when you look back, that's something that we saw both in 2000 and in 2008 was almost this surge in financings because companies, every company that like might need to raise in the next 9 to 12 months with suddenly being told, do it now. And that's almost a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? But there are differences. I mean, I think, you know, one of the dramatic ones that we saw in particular in the last recession, less so in 2000 only because seed funding wasn't really part of the funding cycle then. It's one of the changes that has happened. But when a recession hits, there's interesting the company that's raised $2 million and has an institutional VC fund. And the company that raised two million dollars with 20 dentists writing a $100,000 check or even 20 high net worth experienced tech entrepreneurs writing $100,000 checks because when the Nasdaq goes down by 25 percent the amount that people's spouses permit them to invest in startups instantly goes to zero whereas the $100 million venture fund or the $75 million venture fund is still a 75 million or $100 million venture fund that hasn't changed at all and if anything they just slow down on doing new deals and triage their existing companies, but that usually means in past recessions that existing portfolio companies usually get some kind of bridge or flat round or something. They get kind of a year of cash to kind of push them through the recession, and then the triage happens on the back end of that. Not everyone raises coming out of that, but people usually get the one inside round. And so the companies that have a bunch of angel investors, they're sort of mortality rate in a recession is way higher, at least at the beginning of it, than it is where the ones that are venture funded usually have one chance to get another year of cash and then see if they can raise coming out the other side. And so that's one thing that people sometimes need to factor on, just how are they structuring their financing. It's not something you always have the choice to do, right? You're not always faced with like these two deals ready to close, and one is with a VC and one is with a bunch of angels, but it's still something that people generally can factor in as they think about whether we are going to have a recession, what it's going to look like. And And I think there's Differences of opinion on how dramatic it will be in tech, right? Every recession, at least the ones I've been through, have been different. Well, then if you go back to like 92, 93, which was a couple years before I started practicing, that was exceptionally hard on LA in particular. That was like the aerospace industry and defense industries. LA was actually was the hardest hit market in that recession, not in tech and venture, but just economy-wise. And then in 2000 that was obviously driven by tech and then 2008-2009 was so dramatic just with the economy overall that it was brutal but it was interesting in tech and venture in that period even though financial services was struggling and things were slipping it was like what i guess the first week of october 2008 it was like flipping a switch in tech everything went to like being fine to so, like suddenly bear stearns and AIG or whatever it was like we're just gone and then tech it was like a week later everyone thought we we're going to be standing in bread lines and like not being able to raise money so it was really dramatic there even though people didn't necessarily expect it it was so sudden and this one i think there's some sentiment that it won't be as bad in tech as it maybe won't be as bad overall as, as that last recession it won't be driven by tech as the one before and that part of the recent activity isn't necessarily driven by just everyone being over excited and over exuberant but there's a lot of companies again everything is disruptive and there's a lot of innovative companies really doing well and that's largely what's driving a lot of it and so i think that's going to help the companies raising money at those really high valuations have real businesses and real fundamentals and some of them might have a valuation reset or something but it's not going to be like 2001 where their public companies suddenly don't have a business model are just folding the tent
0: if you had, uh, in terms of giving advice to people, when you look at the calls you get and the challenges and the landmines that you've had clients hit over the years, in this environment that we're going through right now, any particular advice or traps for the unwary that people should be thinking about?
1: I mean, I think there's probably a couple things. I mean, and and there's actually two things that are polar opposite, depending where the company's at on their stage. I mean, one is I do think that Companies are well advised to sort of take the money that's there for the most part I mean, obviously it has to be partners you want to work with and terms that work But we've seen way more people regret not taking the money and trying to gain me too much You know, I don't want too much dilution and right. I don't want to have this high valuation And I read these horror stories about that and being overfunded and certainly companies shouldn't be too overfunded but people definitely regret gaming that more than just taking what's there, having a strong balance sheet, which is always a good thing as a business, even get a little bit of dilution, and then just figuring it out. But then you sort of balance that with what is sort of the polar opposite, which is companies' desire to preserve optionality or the importance of preserving optionality. And that's one of those things, you know, it matters a little bit less as you get to the, you know, in the early stages, Series C, Series A, where most of the exits are okay. Those are very you know, we're going to be okay results for those early investors and the investors are very founder friendly, company builders, not all the companies make it, when you get more into the growth stage, you're raising money at a two, $300 million valuation, that's great. But those investors having the ability to block a sale, which is a key common term, is something companies really have to grapple with and negotiate and think about because getting that $350 million offer is going to be life changing to their founders, great result for the early stage guys. Yet, if you just took money at a $300 million valuation, that new investor is not happy with that. And so you often can negotiate where they only have blocking rights at 2x or 3x. In an effort to preserve optionality, sometimes you can trade economics for that and give a participating preferred or, in rare cases, even multiple liquidation preference so that you're sort of, that new investor does okay in virtually every exit scenario because they got a juiced return on the downside. And in exchange for that is okay with giving the company optionality to sell for whatever they want to sell for. And there's some companies where that may be the right answer, even though it's an awkward conversation because you're sort of messaging to your new investor, yes, we need your $50 million, but we're not totally convinced that we're gonna go for the billion dollar exit, even though we might.
0: So Dave, that's interesting to me because in an earlier life, I spent more time being a VC lawyer as well and did a lot of work with the idea labs and the Clearstones of the world. And my recollection was that Like in a typical Series A round, you had protective provisions that said you can't change the rights, preferences, and privileges without the consent of the preferred. You can't issue more preferred. And I believe typically you can't do a sale or a merger without the, quote, consent of the preferred. And in fact, one of my clients in New York, I met originally because he had investors from New York that had blocking rights on his ability to do another round. He wound up doing a Series B round. And they were like, nope they literally were going to essentially buy him on the cheap because he was completely locked in. So, long-winded question is, from your perspective in terms of these companies, is it's not automatic that they're going to give up those protections it, with a typical VC?
1: Well, so it is automatic that they're going to be there in some level virtually, automatic, right. especially as you get sort of the later stage you go, we do a lot of times in particular these days where again companies really don't go public and stay as a private company a lot longer, which has a lot to do with it, where you can negotiate to where that block is only 2x or 3x. And really where it comes in is, is that block just, that's 2x or 3x, the most recent money, right? Ideally, for the company's perspective, you have all preferred voting together, and that's what sort of solves it. Because the right. earlier seed and a guys are at 5x or right. 10x or 20x, so they're right. fine. So that's always gonna be their an overall preferred vote. It's really like, what separate blocking right did you have to give to that most recent series? Because the more there's an uptick in valuation, the more you see that new lead investor wanting their own blocks on Got it. sale and on financing's so on like version of common things because they'd argue that their economic, correctly argue that their economics are so different. And that's where I'm saying sometimes you can negotiate that away. It'd still be an overall block, but just not one you'd need to worry about gotcha. in the same way.
0: Okay, that makes sense. So when you look at your cooling now and the, and the role you're playing in, in terms of personalities of the firm, how would you differentiate what you're doing now in your practice from your competition? And I don't mean you have to talk about what's bad about your competition, what's better about you, but like what's unique about your environment? Yeah,
1: I mean, I think when you take Cooley in particular, I think there's really probably two things that are really different and there are really two things that attracted me to come over to Cooley in 2012 and help start the Santa Monica office. And one is just, you know, the other competitors to a large extent tend to be the other Silicon Valley firms, and they're strong in Silicon Valley, for sure. But if you really peel it back, maybe have one other market each where there's truly a really strong presence, where for Cooley, the geographic footprint is by far unparalleled. Well, If you take the eight biggest tech and venture markets, in terms of companies, the market share is leading in six of those markets, and it's no worse than third in the other two. And it's also really strong in China and the UK, our international offices. And so people in Silicon Valley, I think, don't really care about that. It tends to be more Silicon Valley centric. But when you're practicing in LA, and I also mentioned, I was in San Diego, in Seattle, in prior lives, it actually matters a lot. Having that just focus outside Silicon Valley and having that presence. And so having that connectivity into other markets is really helpful. And then the other thing that I think makes Cooley different is just having the fund formation practice, where it's probably 30% of all venture funds and seed fund formation is done by Cooley, and then one of the competitors, Gunnarsson, is probably similar, and then sort of rest of the world is the other 40%. Like, it's that concentrated. And that just gives us really deep relationships. So it's interesting that the focus is on the founders and on the entrepreneurs, and that we share that with a bunch of other firms and people doing that same work. But the sort of gatekeepers for the entrepreneurs are the venture investors and the ecosystems. And so by focusing on building all the different ecosystems and focusing on the investors, it actually gives you the tools to really help those entrepreneurs more than if you were just showing up by yourself. And so I think having that sort of broader approach to the whole environment and not just companies in Silicon Valley or companies in LA, I think is what has really helped us a lot.
0: So when an entrepreneur is thinking of raising money, we've talked to the VCs a lot about what you need to do to get their attention because they're inundated with so many things. How much do you and how much does Cooley help the young entrepreneur if they come to you first, find the right home for VC money.
1: Yeah, we actually do it a lot. We see a ton of really early stage two founders in a business plan kind of companies. I think if you're sort of branded for early stage, and in particular in LA, where there's a lot of sort of internet software mobile companies, there's just a lot of them out there. Where in San Diego, you know, where it's mostly life sciences, the companies probably have a higher hit rate of being real. Like we meet a lot of them, but we also pass a lot, a pretty high percentage of the time. And that is interesting because it's almost. Amateur venture capitalists that it's not very different. And you know, you've seen this too Like it's not is this one of the five companies? I'm gonna invest in this year or two companies. I'm gonna invest in this year and like stake my career It's not is it gonna be a billion dollar company? It's will anyone invest two million dollars in this company? So let me say it's not that we have to pick the winners We just have to pick the losers and pick them Which is maybe a little harsh. for <laughs> you to know, out like right. just which ones we really think can raise money And we actually try and set up our high and we actually are perfectly happy letting companies slip through and seeing them get funded because our time is our only resource. We want to reserve it for companies that we really believe in and then we do spend all time introducing investors. We actually have a full-time business development professional in every office and two of them in Silicon Valley and they probably spend half their time just helping our companies with fundraising with introductions to investors. So that's a fantastic resource and we don't charge for it. It's obviously not our core business. It's just trying to be helpful but Having that, it goes back to having the geographic footprint that in LA, we probably wouldn't really need the business development people. We know the local investors really well. But if we're tapping into New York or Silicon Valley or Boston, those business development folks know which partners at Cooley, know which partners at all the different funds. And so if someone wants to get to a certain partner at Andreessen Horowitz or whatever fund, like they know which partner can make a warm intro. And so we're able to leverage the whole network of relationships of the firm by having dedicated, non-billable people helping connect the dots and helping with that. And it just helps anyway that, you know, I make a lot of the intros, but they're coordinating it and teeing it up because I'm doing it after doing all the client work late at night where like they're coming in in the morning, like, so here's my sets of calls with companies, I'm gonna really help them. Yeah, you know, I think that's an important aspect because their networks vary widely, right? Some come in very well connected and not knowing where they're gonna get their money, but a lot of them are very strong entrepreneurs, but maybe don't have that same network and that's one area we can actually be helpful.
0: So having lived through the evolution of the la vc community and when i started doing this a long time ago when there was palomar and there was red point and then bill elkes did ideal up capital and all of a sudden you saw these funds start up there really have been changes and as as i'm listening to you and i'm thinking about the legal market and for instance the fact that a lot of firms like cooley are deferring fees for these entrepreneurs that come in is it too strong to say that firms like cooley almost have become a farm team for some of the local VCs or otherwise, because when you bet on a client, when you take that client in and you defer fees, in a sense, what you're doing is they passed your screen. You're not gonna do that to anybody, right, presumably. You're making that initial determination of whether or not to invest in this company, which in a sense then, when they go out to the VCs, They've already passed that first level of quality in terms of does that, yeah, is and there I, some truth to that? Yeah,
1: and I think there is some truth in that, right? I mean, it's certainly not that no one's going to invest in a company in that, but the hardest thing at the seed stage is just getting the meetings, right? Because when a company has 15, 20 million of revenue, literally, you can get a meeting probably with anyone that's a fit. And the reality is probably anyone would do the deal at some valuation because it's a real company, right? Whereas at the earlier stages, those VCs are similarly so inundated with early stage opportunities, and there's so many more than you could possibly imagine that find their way to them as well for sure, because they're obviously brand on that way. That I do think intros coming from a known source, it's just the same as having advisors that they know listed in the deck. Just all of those, just you know, this is an indication that this company's for real and is starting to get networked in with some of the right people and has passed a few. Gates, I think you're right, I think it does help. And when you just kind of think back over how the venture landscapes changed, I mean, that's one way, sort of related point where it really has changed is when you go back to like before 2006, maybe, the seed rounds that are so prevalent now, like literally didn't even exist. It wasn't even a thing. Like if you had a mobile company, it's hard to remember this, but there were no iPhones, there were no apps. That meant you were doing carrier deals that took two years to do. And so you were raising $6 million in a series A when it was two founders and business plan, and that was true of all kinds of companies, and it still is of like semiconductors and some life sciences companies, things where you have like certain milestones you have to hit and you need a certain amount of money to build something or get some proof of concept or get some trial done. If you only had half that much money, then you couldn't do anything. But that seed round of funding I think has really changed the landscape because suddenly the million dollar, two million dollar seed round, the cost of starting a company came down so dramatically with everything being in the cloud and all this open source and ecosystem of developers, moonlighting, all these different reasons why cost came down for companies, legal came down less so, separate issue. (laughs) But it's another challenge people have grappled with. And that's actually, I think, part of the underlying almost unheralded reason why LA and New York have risen up to being basically number two in the case of New York and tied with Boston for third biggest venture market in the case of LA is just having that really active seed community where a lot of other markets that had been very strong venture markets just haven't developed 40 seed funds in town, even though when you go back like Austin and Seattle and San Diego and Boulder, all fantastic markets, we have great offices in most of them, but they had the same size or more venture funding than LA, but when that shift happened, they didn't have the ability to create all of those seed funds because there's just so much wealth in New York and LA that they were able to, because those don't really have institutional LPs when you're starting off a $15 million, $20 million seed fund. It's usually just high net worth folks. And so LA in particular has really been able to adapt to that change in just the way the funding cycles work. Again, so has New York. And I think that's really driven this like almost meteoric rise of those two markets into being the market's that are the most active and most interesting after Silicon Valley.
0: It's funny, there's certain things that you say for the first time, like I started out and again, saw a lot of these series A rounds. And then all of a sudden, you know, you, you see these companies, as you're saying, with incubators and accelerators and all this other stuff. But I didn't put two and two together and think that it was because, oh, the cost to get in has gone down because as you say, mobile apps and all these other things in the cloud. I was just thinking about, well, you know, at the end of the day, they put a lot of money out, people got big offices, they geared up and hired all these employees, and they got smart, and they just decided to cut the size of the round down. That may be part of it, but it's also because it's just gotten, just like you can do almost anything on a computer or a phone now, it's gotten a lot easier for these people to start these companies.
1: Well and they, yeah, and they, they raise a million or two, and depending on the business, they come out the other side to raise their Series A with real metrics. You know, and the VCs have gotten good at knowing, like, if it's content and they have 50,000 daily active users, whatever they're looking for. And if it's e-commerce or SaaS, it's just what's your cost of acquisition and what's your lifetime value of your customer. And just like if, if you can prove those unit economics, if you can show indications unit economics make sense and can work, you don't have to have that many sales to be able to extrapolate that it's going to work for the long term. And so the ability to sort of get metrics off a million or two that demonstrate a lot of visibility into where the company might go for the long term has
0: really been huge. So years ago, or when you were doing these seed rounds, a lot of times you'd see these convert deals. Now a lot of people are doing these safe agreements. Is that become commonplace? Is that something you see across the board? Is it replace convertible notes initially, or are they pass a already, and there's something new? Like what? Yeah, I don't
1: think safes have replaced convertible notes, although they have over the last five years have gone to it being 90-10 notes to saves to 80-20 to 70-30 now it's probably 50-50 between notes and saves. okay and i will admit that i was one of the people when safes first started being popular we would do them but it was of, in the camp that it was kind of a solution chasing a problem that it's like virtually the same thing but like and no interest rate i get that's a real economic term and also for notes it served a purpose it basically increases the discount a little bit for time if you raise the money a year and a half later the discount in effect, you had a 5% interest rate had gone up by 7.5%, versus if you raised it right away, then what didn't change at all, right? So that was actually, to me, my mind, was for a purpose. And then the fact you don't have to pay it back, like it was for you know my whole career. And I'd never once seen that happen in a negative right. way with notes where it actually caused a problem. You know, maybe there'd be one random like individual investor that probably shouldn't have been investing in anyway that made only had one tech investment that wanted their money back. But if the notes could only be called my majority interest, is how they should be drafted, and usually are drafted that person couldn't do anything anyway. So it usually never mattered. But I think that safes have definitely hit that tipping point where they're just as common. They work really well. They do have the advantage in that because they're open source, you can send it to anyone and hopefully not get a lot of comments, right? And I get that advantage. And so same with the series C forms sort of really helped with seed financing. It's not that they're better than anyone else's really early forms, just having a standard open source set of forms that you can redline against is, look, we didn't change anything, so therefore don't make any comments, has really added efficiency that you didn't have from notes, because everyone used their right, own right. forms of notes. And that's one reason why with Cooley, we've just put all of our forms on a document generator on our Cooley Go site available because we just decided that if people use our convertible note forms, or they use the series seed forms that we have on there, or they, we even have the safes on there too, and even our forms of NDA and consulting agreement and offer like if there's a lawyer in Iowa with a startup and they use our forms, that's just only a good thing. It's just standardizing. Just it right sort right. of similar. It's not quite the same as a safe, but it's the same general concept that might as well people have good forms and standardize it, and I think that's partly was driven of safes. But I think it's fundamentally the same thing. I think what's been interesting with the development of notes and safes is that those really, and started with notes, were really structured to be an instrument for bridges, where it was like, we're gonna be raising the next six months or soon, and we're putting in money early, either it's an early investor or it's existing investors just kind of doing a down payment on like prorata, they would have done anyway. But then now people use them as entire rounds of financing where it's two years of cash. And so you've had a little bit of an adjustment in the terms because they're being used for a purpose that they weren't originally intended. So evaluation caps started creeping in and that's originally supposed to just be outside protection that in case the company just absolutely crushes it, a 20% discount or whatever the discount is, isn't fair. And so we're going to set this cap. But now people really just look at the cap as the valuation. You think, well, if that's true, then why don't you just do a price round? It's another technical discussion, but it's, you know, it's sort of being used in a way that it wasn't intended. So you've had to we've had to kind of adjust the terms. And then you have at the early stages when you have notes, what's most common from sophisticated investors in particular is that if the company gets sold, the notes just get 2x or some amount off the top just back. But then, you know, I won't name the company, but I had one company a few years ago where they had raised three or four million in convertible notes from a bunch of institutional investors and then got acquired on the backs of just that financing for $300 million and had these notes that just paid to seed investors, 2x. Right. And there was a negotiation that took place, they weren't but ready. you know, just another example of just it's the instrument wasn't it's being used in a way that it wasn't really set up for, and you sometimes have these unintended consequences where if that had been just done as a price round or with some other way of converting it or having the ability to convert it, it would have. Uh, they would have know, been protected. It, yeah, they would have made 15x.
0: So there's been a lot of talk recently about going after some of the tech companies because of privacy issues or monopoly issues or all sorts of other stuff. In terms of your personal interest or kind of where tech can have a positive impact in society or otherwise, are there any things that you think about or thoughts in terms of where as a tech lawyer, as somebody involved in the ecosystem, where with a lot of the daunting challenges today, you're seeing companies think about trying to fix some of these things?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that certainly interesting to see where it goes. I mean, the privacy issues and some of those issues that the biggest companies of Facebook and the Googles are facing certainly do have an effect. And you do see some things coming down in some of the ad tech companies that are sort of dictated by those companies. And there are reactions that people have to those. And there's been a big flurry of activity In the privacy space too with all the companies having to comply with gdpr and then the california equivalent which is coming out i guess at the end of this year goes into effect and so i guess where i've seen it more with the companies i work with is just having to struggle for their own compliance and and maybe it's a benefit to the lawyers because they'll have to come and do this project right so more people being sort of either having to go scramble to comply or feel some of the impacts, whether it's Google controlling advertising certain ways or just like Facebook's, there's nothing wrong with it, but Facebook's like continuing just, they change their algorithm every year and all the content companies have their nice upticks in users and views go down and because they constantly keep changing the way their algorithm works. And so these it's more just seeing the companies just trying to react and keep up with that. And again, it's probably good that they keep changing, otherwise the people that were gaming how to get more hits and more views through Facebook and Google would be the, you don't want that to be the sole path to succeeding with your company, right? But it also keeps everybody on their toes.
0: Cool. Are there things, Dave, that you want to touch about that we haven't talked about? Yeah,
1: I mean, I think when you look at LA, In particular, I think that we're really bullish on it only because I think what's happened in LA is really sustainable, which I think is great. I don't think it's just a surge. I think that there's really the fundamentals and the ecosystem have changed so much. Again, New York has risen ahead, but we have Snap and SpaceX and a couple of the bigger companies they don't have. And historically, I only mention that because historically what had fueled the growth of the tech markets outside Silicon Valley Had been having the presence of one or more hundred billion dollar public companies. Seattle had Amazon and Microsoft, San Diego had Qualcomm, Austin had Dell, the Mid-Atlantic had AOL, Boston had four or five of them, Silicon Valley had 30 of them. And that's what really fueled those markets and LA and New York have succeeded in spite of that. And even SpaceX is a private company and Snap has fueled some new companies but not as many as those others and so to me it bodes really well because inevitably that will happen where a couple of those really really large companies come out of LA and again and New York and I think that that's going to just add to it, because I think that we've succeeded in LA in spite of never having the one thing that actually fueled the growth in all the, quote, competitive markets outside Silicon Valley. And I think that LA too, I guess the other thing I'd say about ecosystem here, and we touched on a little bit with all the seed funds, but LA has sort of these twin advantages over other markets, again, all markets other than Silicon Valley, that we have this amazing seed ecosystem. And that's fundamentally what has to be local. Raising your million dollar round is very, very difficult to have a lead investor from another market. Sometimes people participate or whatever, but they still like to have someone else. So we have that, but then Southern California is the one other market that really has really, really easy proximity to Silicon Valley. Because in LA, when you get past seed to go to your real Series A, there's really only a handful of funds here that do an eight or $10 million or right. more Series A financing. And so people look at it and say, well, God, that's just big negative on the market. But the reality, it doesn't matter it's because Silicon Valley from all of Southern California, San Diego too, is a one hour flight away the flights are like every hour, but that's on each airline. Like, they're actually more than that when you fold them all together. And the VCs like coming down here. It's just very easy. Whereas even, again, Seattle, not to pick on them, but Seattle, Boulder, Austin, thats a two and a half hour flight. If you time it perfectly, you can go up and back for the board meeting if you're the VC from Silicon Valley. But you can't really stay for dinner, and it's just not as easy. And so having that proximity, and also just entrepreneurs that, oh, you want to take a fundraising meeting tomorrow, I'll just get up there tomorrow. It's just so easy that the combination of the local sea capital coupled with that access to Silicon Valley's immense amount of venture capital funding that other markets don't really have, I think is just this combination of factors that I think no one can take away. And so I think that we're really bullish on where LA goes.
0: That's interesting. Do you think that for young graduates, like the Steve Jobs of the world that start their companies in their garage for sake of argument. So I'm a kid that starts a company in Austin or Atlanta or wherever. People talk, right, and everybody knows things. Do people actually think, hey, cost of living, weather, and the fact that there's so much seed money in LA, we should go start our company in LA? We see that a lot now. We never used to. Right. right. That's I mean, not, that's we, used to, we used we yeah. used to see
1: the opposite. Right. 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 That you
0: would see companies
1: being funded and asked to move. Right. And then there was a period, I mean I haven't probably like before maybe two thousand I'm making this up, but before two thousand seven you probably saw that a lot. And then between 2007-2013, when you would see it as if you had enterprise software company whose customers were other large tech companies, they'd be like, you need to be in Silicon Valley because all your customers are in the backyard and that's those companies are asked to move. I haven't heard of any company being asked to move since probably 2013. And you're right, on the flip side, we see companies even from Silicon Valley, let alone elsewhere, like deciding when they look at where should we start our company, if it's Again, anything sort of entertainment, anything ad tech, there's certain, anything e-commerce, certain things are obvious, but even otherwise, they like the lifestyle, they like the access to capital, just the whole combination of factors and seeing that there's a real startup ecosystem. We do see that and it's really exciting
0: and refreshing. Do you, uh, just cause I'm curious, you, you mentioned a couple times that e-commerce is quote, big in Southern California. Are we bigger or is head-to-head with Silicon Valley when it comes to e-commerce? I think we're
1: actually far ahead, is my sense. I mean,
0: why is that? And you're defining e-commerce in what way in terms of like, what's unique about it?
1: When you look at it, LA has always been stronger in companies that had revenue earlier. I think it was just, this goes back even 20 plus years where some of it's a reaction to not having those large amounts of capital in your backyard where you had a lot of lead gen companies, a lot of just companies doing, again, e-commerce where you have like, Revenue from your first day, L.A. out indexes, in particular compared to Silicon Valley, big time on those kinds of companies, and under indexes on ones they are going to raise $30 bucks before they see revenue. It's just the nature of the market. But you look at, you know, it's just a long list. I mean, Dar Shave Club an example, one I started with when it was two founders raising 100 grand and took them through billion-dollar exit, and that's just one example. But then there's Honest Company and MeUndies and Ritual doing vitamins and Happiest Baby doing smart bassinets, and Burst doing subscription toothbrushes, and Parachute doing sheets and bedding, and Figs doing apparel. Like there's just this long, almost limitless list of companies that are really, really doing well. And I think this is one of those things where there's just fundamentally companies start with talent, and LA just has a lot of, just like it does with media entertainment stuff, it has a ton of talent that is experienced around building those companies. And so you get a few of them that do really well and it really matters because those companies, they're interesting because they're sort of, I enjoy working with them because they're sort of math-driven. Like when you sit there in a board meeting, it's like, what's the acquisition cost? What's the lifetime value of customers? How are we pricing? And SaaS companies have some similarities where it's very much like math-driven marketing, which is different than other kinds of companies. So people that have that experience and skill set, you know, obviously the most important thing is building a brand, but then behind the scenes, it's all math. So
0: it's an interesting combination. So when you're, as you said, building a brand and these e-commerce companies how much when they start out are they saying we're going to do this build a brand and sell not using amazon or or is amazon taking over all the world when in other words, when you're but, sitting in these meetings are they thinking about how we're going to market on amazon or are they yeah thinking-
1: they actually very rarely go on Amazon. There's a few that do, right, right. but you're paying half or whatever. Right. I mean, it really impacts your economics. So there definitely are some that do, but there's been a very strong trend where people are, don't even really consider it. And some of them maybe should. Like, they've actually had to go the other way with a couple, like, maybe we should be right. doing this. And it's like, why aren't you all, well? which is we never have, you know, which isn't always the right answer. You want not actually have thought it through. But yeah, it really has been for the kind of direct to consumer, like digitally native brands, like really have mostly stayed off of Amazon.
0: And using and, keywords in Google and Facebook, for yeah, marketing, it's mostly,
1: yeah, it's Facebook ads, you know, interesting podcast ads are some of the most effective ones because it's so right. targeted, right? right, where they can really select their audience in a way beyond. And then a lot of them having surprising success with like TV and radio. And they, there's these companies out there that do attribution to help them figure out what was the cost of acquisition for that. And it's algorithms that are probably half made up, but you need to have some number to put there. And so to track that compared to Facebook ads. So it's usually Sometimes it's keywords but some of those keywords are really expensive and it tends to be more sort of Facebook ads and other things that are a little bit more targeted. And then again it's as if they can acquire users for 10 bucks but they're worth 50 in margin to them then over time then that's completely worth it. And that's where the subscription models come in because right. they make it so much easier to peg a high lifetime value number where the ones that aren't subscription usually are sort of breaking even on the first sale and then really trying to prove that when people purchase again, they didn't pay for them again, that they actually came back
0: organically. Right. So That's- again, thinking where the puck's going, and maybe I'm late to the party here, but Amazon clearly disruptive, the retailers of the world, the Toys R Us's of the world, the Walmarts, the Staples, everybody's, you know, getting their butts handed to them by Amazon to a large extent, Walmart's coming back and doing things. But on the puck, we've talked about retail, we've talked about experiential, but in terms of e-commerce, I've always thought about it, that the trend was really towards Amazon, But when I'm now thinking about the ads I'm inundated with on Facebook for whatever, even though I normally find it so much easier to just buy on Amazon, boom, it sounds like there's a lot of growth in this area of other platforms to sell your goods. And in a sense, it's almost like Facebook's another alternative to Amazon. Right. And it's using kind of... Artificial intelligence <laughs> to figure out what to target with. I think I know what I want, so I go to Amazon. Facebook's doing the opposite. It's basically saying, I know what you want, Jim, and I'm going to send it to you. I mean, it's well, fa- that's exactly right. Because that's I mean, because I've I think never the, thought about business the key. Management. The it's key it.
1: to those digital Wholes- brands and why they do well is because they have cut out all of the wholesale costs. Whether it's Amazon, and some of them certainly do, right? I mean, and it's a big decision. Like you have ones like Honest Company that do sell a lot through traditional retail. And that's a big decision because even taking on Amazon, just do we sell our products in traditional retail? Most of them don't do that either. Because again, it's sort of the whole point was that we don't have any of those costs. And so it's just our retail price. And then that marketing cost of acquiring you as a customer, we can just compare to that. And we're not having Walmart or Target, whoever, making us take this huge haircut on our selling price. And so if anything, the trend these days is they now open their own retail locations be you know, their own branded ones We you know, with Allbirds, does this and Parachute, and it really works, and it actually ends up really driving better e-commerce in those local markets where they do have a store. And so they're profitable on their own, but they also help the overall business because just that awareness of, oh, there's a store in Abikini, I see it, it's awesome, I know it's there, like actually just increases awareness where it's almost like advertising. Instead of buying a billboard, they just have the store, but people can go touch and feel it, and depending what it is, sometimes they'll go and look at it, but then go back and buy online.
0: That's very helpful, Dave. Thank you. Thanks. Join us in the next episode of The Puck when we talk with Rob Freeland at Silicon Valley Bank. Rob oversees SVB's technology practice and shares his approach with venture-backed tech and life science entrepreneurs in helping them into market-leading positions in the industry.